lock your knees in an unhealthy way, don't do that. Please sit. We won't be offended. <coughs> Sermon text this morning is from Daniel 4. Daniel 4. Hear the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and the interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that it, the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and give it to, gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you're able, for the spirit of the holy one, holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in whose food, uh, which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, 
chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the, root of, the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the feasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you should be driven from among men, and your dwelling should be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots in the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray now that you would, you would speak to us, that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to see the truth of your word and respond accordingly. Pray that you would give us what we need, especially if it's not what we want. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Daniel 4. We are continuing our journey through Daniel. Uh, the first six chapters is a series of narratives. Uh, Daniel 4 is a story that's it's pretty unique to the book of Daniel. It's, it's written 
uh, about King Nebuchadnezzar, but it's set in the form of a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar himself. So most of the chapter, with a couple, couple breaks, most of the chapter is written from King Nebuchadnezzar's first-person perspective. So it's, it's, a really interesting, it's a really interesting chapter. Um, if, if you're just kind of joining us in our, in our series through Daniel, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, which was uh, one of, if not the most powerful empires in the world at the time. It's, it's likely that King Nebuchadnezzar is one of the you know, top 10 most powerful men to ever live. He, he, he had so much dominion. He had so much power. He had so much authority. And, and the reason that Daniel and, and some other Judeans are in the, the kingdom of Babylon is because the Lord himself allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to overcome and overwhelm Jerusalem, to conquer the city, and to bring out of it some of these exiles. And Daniel is one of those exiles. Uh, over the past three chapters, the Lord has been giving King Nebuchadnezzar a lesson in power and authority. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar time and time again that he is the one who is all-powerful. He is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the king of kings. And what we've seen, especially the last two chapters at the very end, you see these praises from King Nebuchadnezzar. And actually, there are, there are chapter division issues with the beginning of chapter 4. Because chapter 4 begins with a doxology. It begins with a praise of God. And it's confusing because the other chapters included those at the end. So what some people did is they were dividing up uh, the... Um, this, this book is that they put the first few verses, the first three verses of chapter four at the end of chapter three. And so for, for some translations and some versions, the Daniel four would begin in verse four because it, it begins with a praise. And Nebuchadnezzar has been praising God for all that he has done. What, think about what King Nebuchadnezzar has learned so far. As you reflect on Daniel 1, Daniel 2, and Daniel 3, what, what has this, this pagan king learned about the one true and living God? Well, he learned in chapter 2 that God can reveal hidden knowledge like no other deity. You remember the dream that he had in chapter 2 and he asked all of his wise men to, to come and, and not only interpret the dream, but to tell him what he dreamed? And none of them could do it. And they said, this is impossible. No one could do this. And then... And then Daniel, he steps up and he actually shares the, the content of the dream because the Lord revealed it to him. Nebuchadnezzar learns in that moment, oh, this God is different. He is more powerful than, than the gods that we have. He is able to reveal hidden knowledge like no other God. Well, then in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar learns something different. As he calls all the subjects in his kingdom to worship the statue that he has built and he has this decree of death that, that he sentences across his kingdom for anyone, anyone who would not come and bow before the statue and worship it. He encounters these Judean men, young men, who refuse to compromise their faith. And they're willing to die rather than blaspheme their God. And as he throws them in a fiery furnace, what he learns is that God is powerful enough to save his people from impossible circumstances. So he learns about God's unparalleled power and also God's goodness to his people, that he will deliver his people from death itself. 
So Nebuchadnezzar so far has learned that God is generally powerful, generally sovereign, and generally good to his people. And then we look at the beginning of chapter 4. Let's look at it again. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It's a typical greeting for a letter at this, at this time in history. And he says in verse 2, It has seemed good to me to show, to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. You see, the, the big issue for King Nebuchadnezzar is not that he doesn't recognize the power of God. He recognizes God's power. It's not that he doesn't recognize the sovereignty of God. He recognizes that God's sovereign. He recognizes that God saves his people. And that God is way more powerful than him, even though he's on a constant ego trip. What King Nebuchadnezzar has still failed to learn is that God is sovereign over him, personally. That God is powerful over him, personally. And that God, in his grace and in his mercy, extends his love even to King Nebuchadnezzar, personally. He has failed to learn that God is personally powerful, personally sovereign, and able to personally save even him. He opens in verse 2. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And it forces us right at the very beginning. See, see chapter 4 begins at the end of the story. It begins at the end of the story. Listen to what God has done for me. King Nebuchadnezzar has experienced a change. And, and I, I do fear that, that you and I are prone to this similar faith gap. It, it's, it's a faith gap. It, he believes right and true things about God, but there's a gap because he doesn't apply it to himself. So I, I doubt very many people in this room would, uh, would reject God's sovereign power. We, we believe in God's sovereign power. We believe that God has all authority in heaven and on earth. We believe that God is the creator of all things. We believe that no one is like him. We believe that he is capable of unparalleled, powerful, saving work. But sometimes, don't we have a little bit of a practical forgetfulness about God's direct and personal authority over our lives? If you struggle, think of kids for a second. Okay, so if you have kids, you know this for sure. If you've been around kids, you've probably seen this. Children actually don't have a problem with rules, okay? They don't. They don't have a problem with rules. A lot of kids have a problem when the rules apply to them, right? right? Have you ever experienced that? Especially if it, like for, for our kids, we have, we have three, three young kids, and uh, our oldest, you know, he, he understands the rules very clearly, and he can apply them whenever his brothers break the rules, okay? He knows them so well, and he knows that mommy and daddy have the authority to bring down the hammer of justice, right? But only, when it, only whenever he sees his brothers fall. Now, when he breaks those same rules, all of a sudden the authority is a problem, okay? He... He struggles with that. Kids, kids, they understand that rules apply, but they just don't apply to them. Sometimes we don't live like we believe we are under God's authority. Sometimes we don't live like we believe we are wholly dependent on God. So just think about this. How conscious are you of your dependence on God for everything you have and everything you do today? How conscious of you 
are you with that? That everything you have is a gift of God's grace. That you are dependent on God for your next breath. How often do we think about that? Do you really see every good thing in your life as a gift of God's grace? Do you actively seek to align your choices and your plans and your dreams and your actions with God's word and with God's will? It's so easy for us to forget, just like King Nebuchadnezzar failed to ever fully realize up until this point, that God is personally sovereign over us. He's personally sovereign over me, not just generally over the whole world, over me. Okay, we are tempted every day to believe that lie in the Garden of Eden. Remember that original lie in the Garden of Eden? You can be like God. You can take God's place. We, we believe the lie that we are the masters of the universe and that we are the lords of our own lives question to consider as we walk through Daniel 4. Who really sits on the throne of your life? Who really does? Not, not who should, not who you want to. Who really sits on the throne of your life? The story of Daniel 4 is actually a warning. It's a great story. It's a great story, but it's a warning. Look at the end real quick. You might have to even flip over in your Bible. Look at the end. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And then here's the lesson of the whole chapter. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Daniel 4 serves as a warning to us about what can happen when we allow ourselves to usurp God's place or to take his place and to take the throne of our lives to set our own agenda without considering his so while Nebuchadnezzar is indeed the king the biggest question of his life up until this point is will he humble himself to acknowledge the reign and rule of the king of kings he tells us it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. He had to tell his story. So that's what I'm going to do. We're going to walk through the story, okay? There are four parts to the story, and then there are two lessons that we're going to consider at the very end, all right? So let's, let's walk through the story a little uh, piece by piece. So first, the story begins with surprising praise, okay? It's surprising. It's not surprising because we've seen uh, Nebuchadnezzar praise before. We've seen him praise before, but it's surprising because this time it's personal, okay? We see, uh, you know, Daniel 4 begins at the end of the story. We see that the same group, if you notice this, the same group, all peoples, nations, and languages that was called to worship the statue is now called together to hear of his great worship of, of, of the one true and living God, okay? So Nebuchadnezzar praises God for his greatness, how great are his signs, how mighty Mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. But he also praises him for his goodness to him. He had to share these signs, these wonders that, that the Most High God is not just doing, not just doing in general out there in, in the world somewhere, but that he's done personally to and for me. 
And so, so it forces us to ask that question, what happened to him that caused such a dramatic change in his heart? Because as we've seen, Nebuchadnezzar's heart has been tormented from day one, from verse one of opening, opening the book of Daniel. It's been tormented. He has not been at ease. And we see a completely different person here at the beginning. He seems far more content. What happened? Well, first, he had a troubling dream. He had a troubling dream. Um, now, the beginning of Daniel 4 makes you think of, the, uh, makes you think of Daniel 2. It, it, they, they almost are like perfect mirrors, okay? So, so the king has this troubling dream, just like he did in Daniel 2. And then what's he do? He asks his wise men to interpret the dream, just like he did in Daniel 2, and, and they can't do it. They, they can't, or, you know, in this case, in this case, you know, he actually tells them the dream, you know, so it's different this time. He tells them the dream. I bet they didn't want to give the interpretation, you know, because as they're, as they're listening to the dream, they're probably like, yeah, I don't know about all of that, but this just really does not sound good. I'm not going to put myself out there. I'm not even going to try. I don't know, King. No clue. Go out, go find Daniel, you know. I don't, I don't know. Um, so, so they just, they don't or they won't. Um, so then he turns to Daniel, just like he did in chapter 2. Um, and then he tells us the dream. Here's the dream. He dreams of this cosmic, life-giving tree that reaches to the heavens and provides for, for creatures. This cosmic, massive, life-giving tree. And it sounds, sounds great so far, and then really quickly, in the dream, there's this angel, this watcher, this holy one who comes in and issues this decree that the tree is to be cut down all the way to the stump. So it's not going to be uprooted. The tree's not going to be uprooted, but it's cut down all the way to the stump. The, the roots remain. And then, then you have this weird, like, you know, change the tree. The tree then becomes like an animal. So the tree becomes an animal for seven periods of time. And, and the purpose of that, the purpose of that is so that the living, so that people would know God's supreme rule and his sovereign power. Well, he, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know for sure, so he calls in Daniel. Daniel is basically like head wise man. You know, like he's over all of these, uh, these wise men and these magicians, the chief of the magicians. That, that's such a cool title, by the way. Like, I'm Daniel, the chief of the magicians. Um, but uh, so, so, so Daniel's called in. I want you to look at verse 19 with me at his interpretation. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Daniel doesn't want to give the interpretation either. Why? We still, have, we still are not sure what the dream means. And we're, we're given this insight into Daniel's mind and into his heart. He is dismayed. He is alarmed by this dream and its interpretation. He hesitates. He hesitates to even tell the king what the dream means. And then with some encouragement from the king, you know, don't worry. Don't worry. Just tell me. Daniel tells him. He says, you, O king, are the tree. You're the tree. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar. I knew it. I knew it. I'm this big, awesome, glorious tree. Yes. That's awesome. He's like, you're the tree. 
You have so much power. You have so much dominion. You give life. You're, you're so powerful. You are the tree. You are this cosmic, life-giving tree. Now, you're going to be cut down. You're going to be cut down. The cutting away of the tree is God taking away your kingdom. God's going to take your kingdom from you. But not only is he going to take your kingdom from you, he's going to drive you outside of the kingdom. He's going to drive you out into the wilderness, and you are going to become more like an animal than a man. And it's going to last for seven periods of time. I really, really wish Daniel's interpretation would have included how long that is because it's just, I don't know, it's interesting. Seven periods of time, we don't know. We're not, we're not sure. Uh, some people have said seven years, seven months. Uh, some have said seven seasons. Uh, we're, we're just, we're really not sure uh, how long that was. Um, but he says it's going to last for seven periods of time and it's also going to last, this judgment from the Lord is going to last until you recognize that God is personally sovereign over you until you humble yourself before God. That's the interpretation. And again, again, I'm always so struck by Daniel. In verse 27, I'm always so struck by him because verse 27 is so unnecessary to what the king's asked him to do. The king only asked him to tell him what the dream means. And he told him what the dream meant. He's like, you're going to be judged. You're going to be judged by the Lord. You are a great tree, but you're going to be cut down because you have not humbled yourself before the Lord. He is going to humble you until you learn that heaven rules. And, and you know, after verse 26, it, he could have just left it there. That's it. That's the interpretation. But we see Daniel's concern. We see why he was so dismayed. We see why he was so distraught and why he hesitated. It's not because he feared for his life that the king might not like what he said. It's because Daniel loves the king. Daniel is an exile, essentially a slave in this kingdom of Babylon. And he has just received news that the king who destroyed his city, who has blasphemed and mocked his God, who's tried to kill his friends and who has brought him in as an exile is about to lose it all. There's not a little bit of joy in Daniel. There's not a little bit of, oh man, you're about to get exactly what you deserve. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I can't wait to tell you what this dream means. You're the tree and you're going to be cut down in your face. King Neb, none of that. Daniel is deeply concerned for the king's well-being. Daniel loves the king, and then, that's why verse 27 exists. After he tells him the interpretation of what's going to happen, he gives him advice, unprompted advice, unprompted counsel. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity Daniel advises the king to do two things put off your sin put off your sin and put on righteousness 
And he gives them an example of how you can do that. O king, you are about to be humbled because you are exalting yourself. You are not accurately evaluating yourself in comparison to God and in comparison to others. So please, stop using your power to increase your comfort and start using your power to decrease oppression. You are using your power inappropriately. You are not viewing your kingship as a gift from the Most High God. You are viewing it as an, as an accomplishment of your own doing for the purpose of advancing your own glory. And so you are using your power and your authority to increase your own comfort. Stop doing that. And start using your power to show mercy to the oppressed. There are people suffering in your kingdom. Show them mercy. Show them kindness. In order for him to do that, the king would have to humble himself. But, but that's, that's Daniel's counsel. His counsel actually shows us that this dream is sent by God to King Nebuchadnezzar as a warning. It was unnecessary for Daniel to say this, but you, you know, it was also unnecessary for God to even give him this dream, right? He could have just done it. He could have just taken away his kingdom and sent him out into the wilderness. He could have just immediately judged him. But the Lord is kind, and the Lord is patient. And God gives even this wicked king a warning through this dream. He warns him of what's to come if he does not change his ways, if he continues down the same path. What we see from Daniel here, though, is something I want to see at Trace Crossing. Daniel exemplifies a culture of grace. You see what Daniel does? Daniel, in contrast to King Nebuchadnezzar's pride, demonstrates humility. You see, the king did not accurately evaluate himself in light of God and in light of others. He thought he was way above everybody else and he thought he was on par with God. He exalted himself. But Daniel did the exact opposite. He, he saw himself as a mere man. A sinner completely dependent on God. And he saw in King Nebuchadnezzar a fellow sinner. A fellow sinner in need of God's grace. And so he speaks to King Nebuchadnezzar a word of truth in love. A word of truth in love. He has this gotcha moment. He has this in-your-face moment. And, and he doesn't capitalize on it. Instead, he gives him this honest interpretation. He does not soften it at all. He doesn't soften the interpretation. He tells him the bad news in its fullness. He tells him the devastating news of, of what's going to happen to him. And then he calls him to change. Think about it. Daniel in exile calling the king of Babylon who could snap his fingers and end Daniel's life. And he says, hey man, you've got to change. You've got to change. You've got to put off your current behavior. You've got to put off your sin. And you've got to put on righteousness. You have to humble yourself before the Lord. He calls him to change. He gives him this word of truth. He tells him that he's wrong. And he tells him how to be right with God. But he does it in love. He does it in love. He's so deeply concerned for the king of Babylon he cares so much for his well-being. His heart is genuinely, genuinely broken over the judgment that the king is about to face. 
how does your heart react to lost people in your life? Does your heart break for them? Or when a brother or sister falls into sin, do you become judgmental or do you become gracious? What is the natural disposition of your heart toward a person who is in sin against God? Do you see yourself as above them? Do you exalt yourself over them? Or do you see them as a fellow sinner in need of grace? What is your disposition? I want us to be a people who are deeply committed to the truth of the gospel and the testimony of Scripture. Deeply committed to it. We will not balk. We will stand firm in the truth of the gospel and in the testimony of Scripture. We're not moving off of it. And at the same time, at the same time, this isn't an either or, this is a both and. I want us to be a people who are deeply concerned for others, who deeply love others, whether it's brothers and sisters in this faith family or it's people outside of this faith family and people outside of Christ. We should be known. We should be known for grace and love in our dealings with one another and with the lost in our city. I want our natural disposition to be that of Daniel. Concern, love, and grace without abandoning the truth. He exemplifies this this wonderful culture of grace as he shares this bad news with a word of hope. Change, change. Humble yourself before the Lord and maybe he will lengthen your prosperity. Well, the king ignores Daniel's counsel. There's a humbling judgment in verses 28 through 33. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. I love that line. It's like you have this like hopeful moment in verse 27. That, just do it. Just, just do what Daniel has asked you to do. But no, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Let me pause right there. 12 months after he has the dream. You want to talk about the patience of the Lord. He's patient in in even giving him this dream. But then he gives him 12 months. The king did not heed God's warning for 12 months. He did not change. He did not humble himself for a full year. And because the king did not humble himself before God, God humbled the king. Now, how did his humiliation come? Okay, first, verse 29. We see he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Wow. (laughs) Wow. Just let's get explicit with it then. Okay, we get it. We get it. This is all about you. But we see King Nebuchadnezzar didn't change. See, Babylon, Babylon was not only one of the most powerful, wealthy, glorious, it was one of the most beautiful places. Um, one of the, the seven um, uh, wonders of the ancient world, um, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, it was there. 
I mean, just this beautiful place, and he built this beautiful palace, and he's walking on the top of it, and he looks out at all of his dominion as far as his eye can see, and it all belongs to him. It all belongs to him. And he just has this short little, you know, praise song of himself. He just, he just praises himself. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And as he's praising himself, even as he finishes the question he's asking of himself, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven falls. O oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You see the contrast there? Look at my great kingdom as the words are still in his mouth. The kingdom is taken from you. The kingdom is taken from you. His reason and his kingdom were taken from him. He's driven out into the wilderness and he lived and looked more like an animal than a man. And he lived in this state for seven periods of time. The dream is fulfilled. The dream is fulfilled. Verse 33, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. It's pride. It's pride. King Nebuchadnezzar experiences God's judgment because of his pride. Everything he had Everything he did, he attributed to himself. Look at what I have built. Look at my might, my majesty, my glory. What is pride? Pride is, as I've said, an inaccurate evaluation of your place in the world. It's, it's like this, this self-magnifying mirror that distorts your view of yourself in comparison to God and others. As you look at God and as you look at others and then you look at yourself, pride causes you to puff yourself up and you see yourself more on par with God than on par with other people. So you exalt yourself over others. You think of yourself more highly than other people and you don't respect God's authority because you're on the same level as him. Nebuchadnezzar believed he was more like a God than a man. He believed he was more like a God than a man. So he had no need to acknowledge God's sovereign rule. And, and he viewed his fellow man as mere pawns to play in the advancement of his glory. That's why there were so many people in Babylon in need of mercy. And what does pride do then? What does pride do? It robs God of his due. It leads us to claim to be the creators of what is really a gift from God. I love what Tim Keller says about pride. He says, pride is a form of cosmic plagiarism. You look at your life and you say, look at all I've done. Look, look at all I've done. Look at all I, I've accomplished. And, and you puff yourself up and you, and you praise yourself and you're taking credit for what God has done. It's plagiarism. He, everything you have is a gift from him and you claim it as a work of your own hands. Look at all that I have done. That's what, that's what Nebuchadnezzar has done here. Pride leads us to aspire to be more than human. But what it actually does, and this is the picture, this is the picture of this, this graphic scene, it actually makes us less than human. Pride makes us think we can be more than human, but it makes us less than human. 
Because we were created to glorify God and love others. But pride leads us to glorify ourselves and belittle others. If you are prideful, you will not show mercy to other people. If you are prideful, you will not be gracious to other people. If we are a prideful church, we will not exemplify a culture of grace that we're striving for. It can only happen through humility. Now, now look at the end. Look, look at how Nebuchadnezzar is restored. At the end of the days, at the end of these seven, seven periods of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He, he, he praises the Lord in a specific way. Why is his reason restored? Why is his kingdom restored? Why is he himself restored to God? Because he looked up to him. He looked up to him. You see the contrast again? Whenever the kingdom is taken from him, what's he doing? He's on the top of his palace and he's looking down. He's looking down. He's looking out on everything he has, everything that belongs to him. And it's all taken away. He was exalting himself and so he was humbled. And so now, in the depths of this humiliation, the king finally realizes, and he had to become like an animal to realize this, but he finally realizes, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. I'm, I was the king. I was the king. But I'm just a man. And so he looks to heaven. He looks to heaven. This acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, not just over his own people, but over him personally. The king shared a lesson in humility at the end. Verse 37, he praises the king of heaven, and then he says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The picture of humility is that Nebuchadnezzar finally viewed himself accurately in light of God's glory. Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself as if he were a god, and he had to become like an animal to see he was a mere man. He was dramatically humbled. That's what it took. That's what it took for him to finally see himself as he actually is. Sometimes we're brought low like that too. Sometimes we inaccurately evaluate ourselves in the world and the Lord does discipline us and he does bring us down a notch so that we see, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. But this humility, this humility is fulfilled not in any, any person in the rest of the Bible except for one, Jesus of Nazareth. You see, while, while Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself as if he were a god and had to be humbled forcefully by the Lord, Jesus is the glorious God. He is. He didn't glorify himself as if he, he were a god. Jesus is the glorious God who humbled himself by becoming a man. See, Jesus, that wasn't forced on him. 
Okay? He, he wasn't forced to humble himself. He willingly humbled himself as God by taking on human flesh and by dying for sinners, for the proud, like Nebuchadnezzar, like you and like me. Philippians 2, 6 through 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to grow in humility? Look to Jesus. He died for all of your pride, but he also empowers, empowers us to humble ourselves before God. How can we look at Jesus, who deserved eternal praise and took on the shame of the cross, willingly, out of love and out of mercy and grace for his own enemies? How can we look at that and then elevate ourselves over anyone else? even those who harm us, even those who hurt us. Jesus not only died for our sins of pride, but he is our great example of humility. So there are two lessons to take away from from Daniel 4. The first is this. If God can judge and humble the king of Babylon, no one is above God's greatness. It's hard for us to fully appreciate what's happening here. The most powerful man in the world at the time. Like, it's not close. It's not close. The most powerful man in the world is eating grass like an animal. Okay? He, he, he goes mad. He loses his sanity. And so, they, you know, his, his advisors, people around him, they have this contingency plan. He can't continue ruling as the king. So, you know, they, they work something out, and he, he, he just is driven out into the wilderness. And he lives like an animal. The wealthiest, most powerful man in the world is brought that low. No one is above God's greatness. God shows us that he is the one who is sovereign. He is eternal. He himself is the king of kings. No one can escape his justice. No matter how much power they have or how much they have elevated themselves in their own hearts, no one in this room can escape God's justice. You can't avoid it. The king of Babylon couldn't avoid it. So neither can you. If God can judge and humble the king of Babylon, no one is above his greatness. But the second lesson we learn is if God pursued a wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar, no one is too far gone to receive God's goodness. No one. It's hard for us to appreciate that as well. You don't understand how evil King Nebuchadnezzar was. He was so evil and so powerful. And he caused so much oppression. That was at the heart of Daniel's call to repentance for him. Turn from your sin, put on righteousness. Here's an example. Show mercy to those you've oppressed. Here's a good example. God is gracious. God is patient. No one 
can escape the loving, gracious pursuit of God. You may feel like you're so far gone in your sin that there's no possible way that the Lord would ever want to reach you or be with you or bring you into his presence. King Nebuchadnezzar is an example of the lengths God will go to bring the most vile and wicked of sinners to repentance and faith in him. No one's too far gone. No one in this room. No one in our city. No one, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, no one is too far gone to receive God's goodness. God's grace is as infinitely powerful and effective as his justice. God's a both and God. He is both just and gracious. And we see that ultimately in the cross of Christ. He doesn't just let our sins go off. He doesn't just, let us, he doesn't just ignore our sins and welcome us in. No, there had to be atonement. Jesus received the justice of God, though he deserved only his goodness. He received the justice and judgment of God against my sin and against your sin. So my counsel to you this morning is the counsel of Daniel. Put off your sin. Put off your sin. Cast it away. Because Jesus has died for it. Turn from it. And embrace. Embrace Jesus by faith in him. Let me pray for us. God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you are both great and good, that you are both mighty and merciful. I'm humbled by the fact that you can bring someone who is so high in Nebuchadnezzar, so low. No one is beyond your justice. No one is beyond your greatness. But I'm, I'm equally blown away by how good you are to sinners like Nebuchadnezzar, to sinners like me. That you pour out your grace, you pour out your mercy, you pour out your love, you pursue, you chase us down. You are relentless in your love for sinners. We praise you for that. Now I pray that you would help us, help us as your people, to establish a culture of grace, a culture of love, a culture of mercy, where we accurately evaluate ourselves in the world. We see ourselves as under your sovereignty, and, and we see ourselves as equally valuable as everyone else who's created in the image of God, and also as fellow sinners. Grant us this humility so that, so that we can live lives of love and grace and mercy to others. We are blown away by your greatness and your sovereignty. Help us to grow in our understanding of it and help us to grow in our obedience to you as we practically submit to this truth that we believe. Father, be glorified as we continue. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Please stand together. We're going to um, sing the doxology in response to what we've just heard.